this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Anchor. If you don't know what Anchor is and you're thinking about starting a podcast, you should probably find out what Anchor is because Anchor is a free way to host your podcasts. It also gives you creation tools like the ability to record yourself, record with other people, edit as well, and do it from your phone or your computer. You don't need to go buy fancy tools to start. You can start with Anchor. And you can hit the nice distribute button, and it's going to send it out to all the places you want it to be, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. In addition to that, you can make money from your podcast with no basic listenership. In other words, if you only have 10 people because you're just starting, you can still monetize that. It's really hard to find a better place to start. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started on the crazy podcast journey. Let's see if I can get through this intro. <laughs> here we go. All right. Here we go. Ba, 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 ba. <laughs> Welcome back, Creative Beasts. This is Random Badassery, the podcast where we ask, what is creativity, how does it work, and how can we use it? This is a new episode for us, or I shouldn't say a new episode style. It is an old episode style that's kind of come back in a way. Um, for those of you who have been around, our normal episodes are studies in a particular artist, whether it is a director a writer, a visual artist, whatever we see for that month that we want to st- we, that we want to study. And this episode is more focused on this is our middle of the month episode is more focused on what Lamb and I are doing creatively, what's inspiring us, tools that we're using for our creativity, anything that we find useful to share with you guys. So uh, hopefully you'll find some value in these. My name is Chad Hall and my co-host is Lam Wen. Hello everybody, how's it going? I want to do a quick, uh, quick, quip. I want to do a quick couple shout-outs. Um, not specific shout-outs to people because I don't have that information. But I was just looking at our stats, and there are people in places other than uh, California listening to us, which is kind of awesome. I just kind of assumed that everybody around us were the only ones listening. So hello to everybody in Pennsylvania, New York, Texas, and Oregon. Hello oh, wow. to nice. 136 people in England. Nice. Um, Hello to people in North Rhine-Westphalia in Germany. Hello to New South Wales in Australia. And hello to British Columbia in Ontario in Canada. There's a lot more, but those are the big ones. And to everybody else, there's a huge category in here that is 
just listed to me. It's actually our second largest category, other. So if you are other, thank you for listening. <laughs> Lamb, did you want to start off the show with something? Um, yeah, I, I actually, uh, you have the broad stroke on it, and I have the, 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 the more specific, I suppose. Um, I've had a few people come up to me this week. Um, I went to a meeting for uh, a political rally thing, and I had random people come up to me and say, hey, you know, we love the show. Um, so we've got a few locals who are now kind of going out of their way to, to remind us that, that they're in our corner and they're still listening to us as well. So that's been really inspiring. Um, our reader, I, our readership, our, our listenership has, has steadily gone up. And I feel like that, that gives both Chad and I much more motivation, um, to continue doing, uh, what, um, is reasonably painstaking work. I, I, at some point I want to, to talk through, um, the process that both Chad and I use to research our subjects, because I think, uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty arduous in some sense and it's made us experts in in some of these people in ways that we never imagined that we would be so thank you for for inspiring us to continue doing this because i think it makes both chad and i better artists and in a lot of ways it makes us better art historians so that's that's very very cool yeah i'm not i'm not sure what the term is i forgot what the term for it is but there's a term for um when you familiarize with something, something, uh, you see it more often. Um, you know, like when you buy a specific car, like if you buy a Prius, all of a sudden you see Prius everywhere. Um, there's a specific term for that. And I feel like that's one of the pleasures of doing, um, the study episodes is these artists, some, some of which, um, we're hugely acquainted with already, like David Lynch, you and I were really over prepared for that episode already before we <laughs> even got into the study, just because we're huge David Lynch fans. Um, but like the, the last episode, our Bob Dylan episode, even though I've listened to Bob Dylan forever and I know you have too, the amount of research that went into that episode and the things that I learned and having listened to every song the man recorded, uh, I find myself seeing Bob Dylan in places that I didn't see him before making connections, which is, uh, doing studies into artists. That's, that's a value I think we don't talk about a lot in here, but it allows you to make connections and connections are the heart of creativity. Um, when you can see how this thing and this thing fit together, now you, you've created something else. In um, philosophy, they call it uh, synthesis. They, they refer to it as synthesis. When a thesis and an antithesis meet, you have synthesis of a new idea. And that's kind of the, that's what this is for me, and I, I, I feel like that's what you're saying too. Yeah, this, it's fascinating, um, especially the Dylan episode, because you're, you're right. I mean, you and I have been... For some of our subjects, you know, with um, Ian McKellen, for example, I've been an Ian McKellen fan for a really long time. And given that he's um, in a visual medium, I find that it's easier to find his work versus a person like Bob Dylan, where his catalog is so dense and it spans such a long period of time that you forget how much of, of pop culture and how much of our, our culture in general uh, he's really he's really influenced. And so after the, the month's worth of research that we did into Bob Dylan, both as a person and as an, and, and as an artist... I started to see his stuff in all kinds of things that I hadn't noticed him in before. Um, a couple of books that have quotes pulled from him, um, a few ideas from TV shows, and just they're—they're they're just his influence on pop culture is so so vast um, that it's tough to really understand that until you've done enough research into the man. So yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the synthesis is definitely something that that's clearly seen over the span of five decades and. 
Um, I, I feel like it comes in fits and waves, and especially with our, our current situation in this country, I feel like a lot of those sentiments come back. And so because of that, you can see it not just in the art um, that has been produced, but just in, in the culture of revolution or the culture of, of, of you know, disparity between, between the haves and the have-nots or whatever it may be. And it becomes much more clear that his influence is far beyond just the art itself, but much more in culture as well. I think in some ways it's hard to separate pop culture for uh, the 60s, 70s, 80s, and maybe even part of the 90s from Bob Dylan as a whole. I think he is just he's within the DNA of pop culture. Sure. And and pop culture in the grander sense, a lot of times we use the term pop culture to to mean just, uh, you know, the teen pop stars and the TV show that's that's hot this year or whatever. But pop culture in the in the grander sense of all culture that is popular, including literature and art and all of these other things that are popular culture, um, things that we share. And that's one of the great things that I I've, I think that we've done um, so far, if I'm going to pat us on the back for a moment. Um, we didn't do it on purpose, but we've done a good job of balancing larger artists, um, you know, like Bob Dylan, whose name are so synonymous that uh, almost everybody knows who they are, with people who maybe don't have the same name recognition. Um, a lot of people didn't know who Isaac Asimov was. And sure. so it's cool to have the opportunity to introduce people to artists that we respect, um, or maybe I should even use the word creators that we respect. In a weird kind of way, too, especially with a guy like Bob Dylan, um, you see how he defines alternative culture. Uh, you know, if you look at his influence on, on 80s culture or 90s culture, I mean, I definitely do think that there's, there's, there's an underlying influence that he has on, on, you know, the, the alternative movement or the grunge movement, for example. And so I feel like with Bob Dylan, because of how he defined himself in the music industry, uh, when he, when he first got his start, uh, there's a certain sense of, of, of just counterculture that's inherently built into his creative process. And so I think because of that, anyone who followed him, um, anyone who had the guts to follow him and try something that was different from what was popular at the time is definitely influenced by the, not just the, 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 the art he created, but the choice to make the art that he did in the time that he did it. And I think the bravery that comes from a guy like Bob Dylan definitely makes it so that other generations beyond him become more and more brave, allow themselves to take more creative chances and, and feel like they can take those chances and still be accepted within some kind of subculture that then becomes the culture that we all understand. So I think that there's, there's, there's an amazing influence, not just in the art itself, but how the art's created. I think that that's one of the, one of the things that people don't um, take into account, you know, when they, when they get mad that an artist becomes um, big, um, there's this, you know, this whole sellout culture that people use all the time, which I just think is crap. Um, you know, when somebody works 30 years to, to achieve something and they achieve it, that's not selling out. That's achieving. Um, yeah. so, selling out is changing who you are to make money. So let's just make that clear. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan started doing Pepsi commercials in 1965, that would have been selling out. Sure. Uh, but one of the things that's really important about when an artist reaches that stage is it's not only advantageous to the artist, it's advantageous to all of us because um, they go beyond that uh, minutia of what they actually made, which is exactly what you're saying here. And they become a symbol. Sure. Um, they become a motivating symbol for all of us. And that makes it better, not just for those of us who create, but for all of us who want to do something. 
you know, like if you want to start a business or whatever, you and you like Bob Dylan. I mean, let's go back to one of the biggest businessmen of our time, Steve Jobs. Bob Dylan was his idol. Steve sure. Jobs didn't play the guitar. He didn't sing songs. He made computers and he made iPhones and he made little boxes that go in our pocket that can hold every single Bob Dylan song. Um, or I should say he facilitated the business that made them. He didn't make anything. Um, but he was influenced by Bob Dylan. And mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's an amazing thing. And so, uh, I hope that if somebody's listening to the show for the first time and maybe they're not a creator, that you can understand that just talking about these people and these things might help you in a way that you didn't expect. And since we're, we didn't really plan on talking about this stuff, um, and we forgot last episode to do this, this seems like a good time to tell you our next study episode, our next artist that we're studying, which will be in two weeks from this episode, the beginning of the month, um, we will be doing Neil Gaiman, um, author, and uh, most famously, well, maybe equally as famously, um, comic book writer. If you don't know who he is, um, look him up. Maybe uh, do a little research of your own before we get to the episode so that you can, in your head at least, participate in some way as well. Um, yeah, he's he's particularly near and dear to my heart, too. Neil Gaiman, um, for most of my young adult life, was was m- the narrative story- storyteller, um, both from his books as well as from the Sandman comics, who, which I still hail as one of the, the coolest things um, that have come out of the, the comic book spectrum to this day. Um, and the work that he did with probably one of my, my favorite artists of all time, Dave McKeon, um, so anybody who, who is listening to this episode who doesn't know either of those guys, you really are doing yourself a disservice by not diving into the works of both of those gentlemen and or the collaborations that they did through Sandman and various other things. And if you're a part of the younger audience or you're a parent, you might be familiar with Neil Gaiman through Coraline because he wrote Coraline. Oh, that's um, right. So he's, he's, he's also married to Amanda Palmer, the singer. Um, singer musician is probably a better way to say it. Um, so that's 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 who we're doing next, and I'm I'm actually excited. We, we're both already two weeks into research, so we're we're in we're we're in deep into Neil Gaiman's world right now. But that's not what we're talking about here today. Today <laughs> we're going to talk about Lamb and Me, and what's going on with our creativity, and uh, anything that we find useful that um, we've stumbled upon. And since we haven't done something like this. We may wander off into the weeds a lot in this episode. I'm, f- I'm fairly certain that we are. We're probably in the weeds already. <laughs> we'll just we'll just have to rely on each other to uh, reel the other one back. And so, for those who don't know, our original show um, before we changed to this creativity focused format, um, we focused more on the word random, and we talked about pretty much everything: what TV shows we were watching, um, what books we were reading. What apps we were mad at. <laughs> uh, we went all over the place. And so what we're going to try to do here is we're going to try to stay focused and rem- keep everything related to creativity as much as we can. So we're going to rely on each other for that. Forgive us if we go off into the weeds. As I said, we haven't done an episode like this in a while, so we may be a little rusty. So uh, let's get into it. Lamb. Yeah. What's... Uh... <laughs> What's 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 new in the creative world for you? Um, huh. So I, I, for anyone who who's who's been in my life for the last decade, um, I disappeared 
uh, pretty much off the face of the earth for about six or seven years of my life uh, with, a, with a job that I had where I was traveling more than half the year. Um, and in that span of time, I took a ton of photography. I, I did some, some cool artistic things. It's, it's funny how, how creatively free you become when you go into a town and you know absolutely nobody. Um, and I feel like the last couple of weeks of my life, or I'm sorry, the last couple of months of my life, I've kind of been in the same situation uh, in that I'm working so much these days that I have very little time to hang out with friends. So I spend most of my day in the company of strangers. And so because of that, I, I find myself wanting to revert back to my, my roots as an artist, which is um, a photojournalist or a, a, a journaling person or, or, or just a, a, a journalist, uh, period. So lately, I've been kind of obsessed with time lapses. Uh, so I've been doing time lapses of pretty much everything that happens throughout the course of my day, whether it's my work or whether I'm spending time on a golf course or I'm playing a piano or drawing something. I just time lapse the heck out of everything. So for me, there's a very there's a very interesting sense of of, of space and time that comes with a time lapse um, in the sense that you have no definitive sense of narrative in the same way that you would if you're just watching a video of time and it's in, in, in as it runs. So for me, I've been, I've been not just creating more time lapses, but I've also been watching a ton of time lapses too. So that's been, that's so far has been what, not necessarily what I'm, I'm doing as much as what's been inspiring me lately is the, the understanding of time in a different sense than what I'm used to. So for me, that's, that's where I am. What, what, what's, what's flowing in your creative world at the moment? Uh, well, before we do that, I want to tell everybody, if you're following us on Instagram, you may have had the privilege to see two of Lamb's time lapses within the last week. It was, I think it's last week, right? The, the yeah. airport one was in, within the week. Yeah. Yeah. Should be. If, if not, go, go to, go to Instagram.com forward slash random badassery, all one word and look and check out uh, his time lapses. There's, there's a mediocre one of me drawing the, the Golden Gate Bridge, but the other two that are on there are lambs, and the airport one is um, really I, I enjoyed that one a lot. Um, so go check it out. Um, as far as me, um, I've really just I've been actually knee deep in the book, man. Um, probably nice. deeper than I've been in a very long time. Um, I mentioned in a previous episode that I had printed out the first seventy-seven pages of the book, and I was just going through with a red pen. I finished that today, so tomorrow is going in and typing all the changes, and then the day after that we'll be writing all the scenes that are missing, all the holes, and then hopefully trudging forward. Um, it's uh, it's remarkably under control at this point. What what type of environment are you writing? And I'm always I'm always curious about this because I know that throughout the course of our conversations, um, not just uh, for the podcast but just in general, um, we've talked about. Writers in particular setting up very specific environments that inspire them to write a certain way. So I'm, I'm curious as to two, two questions actually. The first is, what is it about the book that you're focusing on at present? And the second is, what kind of environment do you feel best facilitates you being able to do that? Um, as far as what I'm focusing on right now, I've been, uh, I've had like this, I guess you would say this gap. Um, Something wasn't working for me for a very long time. And I think it's what, what has been separating me from the book. Um, it has been make it difficult, be, made it difficult because I, I knew something was off and I couldn't figure out what it was and I couldn't, something wasn't working. And for those of you who haven't written, um, anything as long as a novel, um, 
I had, I didn't know this before either. Um, it's, it's becomes particularly difficult to separate yourself, what you're doing, writing from the point of view of what a reader is going to see. And what I mean by that is you can, um, get into a scene and you can do really clever things that you really like and do some really good writing and be completely blind to the fact that somebody's going to be completely lost reading the scene or they're not going to know what that sentence means or that there's no storyline that's driving them forward to read the next scene. Um, I think that what I was feeling was that there was um, something missing. And when I went through, I think what I realized is that that's what I had done. I had written some very clever pieces, but there wasn't a solid storyline. And this, this novel, um, I'm not going to go into specifics on what it's about, but it has some particularly complex, um, complex pieces to it. Some, some, there's some complex concepts. Uh, and if I don't make this story very clear and I do not make it, um, very basic in the skeletal framework, then all of the other stuff is, is the whole thing is just going to be a mess and it's going to be completely uncom incomprehensible. So it has to have a strong spine so that I can, I can put all these complex concepts in. Otherwise I'm going to lose everybody. Um, so <laughs> what I've really been focusing on is, uh, this idea of, um, there's, there's a lady, uh, she's a writer and she writes a lot about writing as well. Um, her name is K.M. Wyland. I've never read any of her books. I don't even remember how I found her. Um, but she wrote some very interesting articles. I, I'll actually include a link to one of the ones that I just read recently. Um, she basically asks questions like, what is, what is driving your character in the scene? What, what does your character want? And what does your character need? And there's this complex idea here that it's, it's at the heart of any good written story. Um, your character wants something, and most of the time it's a lie. What they want is not good for them, and that's that's why we're that's why we're watching this story. Um, because if if everything was good in their world, we wouldn't need to watch them. Because a story is about somebody changing, or about sure. circumstances changing for that person. Um, and what they need is is the truth of what they really need. You know, um, like for example, one of the examples she uses is Thor, in in the movie Thor. Thor wants to be king. What he needs is to learn humility and compassion. Mm -hmm. And so that the 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 distance between those two things is what drives the for, the reader forward, is um, finding out how those two things resolve. Sure. And and so the, learning how to structure that and how to put that into a story, especially when you have so much of the story and so many pieces already done, you know, ideally you would have this in an ideal world. When you wrote a novel, the first thing you would write is this is my character's name. This is what he wants and this is what he needs. And then write everything from there. But that's not the way novels work, at least not for me. Sure. They come in pieces, like um, a lot of like what um, David Lynch talked about in um, Catching the Big Fish. The idea of you find a fragment and then you use that fragment as bait to get another another fragment, and and then you use those together as bait to get a bigger fragment. And when you when you have nothing but fragments sitting there, you have to learn to structure the spine, and sometimes you have to learn to throw away fragments, and that's really difficult. 
Yeah, I remember uh, in our podcast uh, we did on Murakami, he said something. He's, he has a bunch of stuff that's very similar to that, how the story kind of tells itself through the characters. Um, so I think that, that the through line for any narrative is, is defining that sense of, of, of need for the character. Um, so, you know, anytime I've, anytime I've struggled with writing a story, it's because I don't really know what the character wants. And that's always, that's always something that now when I sit down to write anything, I really focus on trying to find out what the, 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 the driving motivation is behind, um, the character, because trying to figure out what the story is, is, is impossible unless you know what everybody wants first. You know, right. And one of the biggest one of the biggest flaws in any art form, movies, um, particularly story in storytelling, is assuming that your audience knows what you mean. Sure. Your job isn't to isn't to do that. Your job is to tell them what you mean. And sure. if you don't do that, you've failed. And and, and I think that um, sometimes we confuse that because we think, oh, they just don't get it. That's the yeah, excuse I, of somebody who doesn't want to do the work. I, I remember there, 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 there are a few pieces um, um, of artwork out there, or movies in particular. I'm thinking of one movie in particular that I absolutely hated um, and everybody loved. And, and the reason I hated it was because there was no, there was no the, the, what we're talking about, which is there was no motivation for the, the main character that was clear. And I thought it was really arrogant of the director to do that. I don't know if you've seen it, but um, I think it's called The Thin Red Line. Um, I mm-hmm. hated that movie on so many levels because it was, there was so much hubris in, in the storytelling that I could not stomach it. Um, I mean, I watched it for the sake of watching it and I know it won a bunch of awards and the director is critically acclaimed and all that kind of stuff. I'm sorry I didn't come into this episode with the director's name. I didn't know we'd be talking about this, but that is a great, <laughs> that is a stunning example of how artistic arrogance can lead to horrible, crappy storytelling. I haven't I haven't seen the whole movie. I've seen parts of it um, mm-hmm. because it was around in the day when um, you could turn on the TV and find movies part of the way through. It was a Malick sure. film, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Terrence, Terrence Malick, Malick. That's right. Ugh, that's right. That's right. That's and Ter- right. Terrence Malick is a terrific director, but oh, he is. Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I didn't find that. that. I didn't find that film the pieces that I saw that great. Um, but you know, that's kind of his thing too. He's, I mean, the, the tree of life is one of those movies where you're like, I have no idea what the hell just happened. There's some really beautiful parts, mm-hmm. but I don't know. You know, he, he Terrence Malick and I, a lot of people are going to hate me for saying this, but I, I hold Terrence Malick in this weird echelon of, 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 of directors in particular that are extraordinarily overrated to me. Um, and I know we've talked about him before, but I, Terrence Malick to me is like a less shocky version of uh, Lars von Trier. I, I don't like either. <laughs> if you could see my computer right now, <laughs> I had I, I blanked on his name. I was literally just Googling the director of Antichrist because everything you said about Thin Red Line, in my head I was thinking about the movie Antichrist. I cannot stand anything that Lars von Trier has done. I completely it, agree with that. I I, I I made the horrible mistake of of Netflixing um, that both Nymphomaniac Nymphomaniac uh, ep, uh, I guess chapter part one, one and, and part chapter two. two yeah horrible I hated it I just hated there were everything parts, that Lars von Trier has ever done there were parts of the first one where I was like oh he finally made a movie that I'm going to be able to connect with and then it just oh it just gets so awful uh, we don't make it a habit of criticizing other artists um, people appreciate him. Um, sure. So I know that, like our friend Colin, he uh, he he really likes um, Lars von Trier. Uh, sure. 
And it, it goes back to that thing where, you know, some people get something out of something that other people don't. I've tried, man. I've gone through like three of his movies and every time I'm like that, this is the last one. Um, but you know, whatever, maybe one day it's going to click with me. It's like when I read Don Quixote, everybody's like Don Quixote may be the greatest novel ever written. I was mm-hmm. so bored when I read that book. And, um, sometimes it has to do with where you are when you approach something as well. Sure. Um, and like, like I know a lot of people, I, I, the, the opposite example is true for me when it comes to Aronofsky, for example, a lot of people dislike Aronofsky, but I absolutely love Aronofsky. So that makes sense. Or totally. Yeah, I've, I've seen people criticizing, um, interstellar by, um, Christopher Nolan online, left and right. That's probably one of my favorite films ever made. So, you know, yeah. teach their own. Hey, there's some, there's some stuff that I know is crappy mm-hmm. that I like. Not, not interstellar, but there's stuff that I actually think is, I'm like, Oh, I understand why people can't stand this, but I love it. And we connect yeah. to things in different ways. And that's, I mean, that's what's kind of awesome. If we all like the same thing, it'd be pretty boring. Yeah. Um, actually, speaking of movies, that's something I've been doing a lot recently is I've been watching one movie every night before I go to bed. Nice. And uh, it's 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 really interesting because I, I think I've mentioned before that I, I got rid of Netflix and I got rid of Hulu because um, I have Amazon Prime and I have HBO. Both of those um, – HBO comes with my internet connection whether I want it or not. And Amazon Prime I use for the shipping so the video is just included. And between those and like the little things here and there from, cause I have a free basic cable with my internet too that I don't use. So mm-hmm. I got, um, some of the basic cable apps I can plug into those. Between those three things, there's so many things to watch. I didn't need the other two. So I could save myself $20 a month or whatever. Um, but one of the programs or one of the channels that I've been looking at a lot is besides HBO is, um, FX. FX has tons of movies on there. There's like 30 movies, 30, 40 movies every month. They change it every month. So I've found myself between that and HBO just going through and watching different movies. And most of them are movies that I normally would not watch. Um, like, for example, I probably never would have watched the most recent um, remake of 21 Jump Street. Um, I'm glad I did. It was really funny. 22 yeah. Jump Street, not as funny. Mm-hmm. But 21 Jump Street, really, really funny. Uh, so I, that's like a big theme for me right now that kind of fits into what we're talking about too. This idea of like reducing your options. You know, we've talked a lot about minimalism before. But reducing your options and realizing that you can find something that's of value to you with a smaller subset of, of options. You don't need every movie in the world available to you to find a movie you're going to enjoy or even just a movie that has a part you're going to enjoy. I think the other side of that too is finding things that you 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 appreciated at some point in your life but you appreciate much more now because you have a more evolved sensibility, I guess. So yeah, definitely. Well, and plus I feel like um there's this is actually really funny. Uh for those who don't know me, which is most of you, when I was younger I was very much a a metalhead and uh um very much into, you know, like uh I, they're not metal, but you know, like also into Guns N' Roses and uh, all that glam rock stuff too. Like the end of the era there, you know, that was my time. You know, that was my era of music at the time. I was of age, sure. and 
Motley Crue was a big band, still a big band, I guess you could say. <laughs> they had lost their singer. You know, the Vince Neil had left, and they had this like replacement singer. And I remember that it was – I don't know if it just came to us at the right time. It wasn't a, a great album maybe, but my friend Richard and I at the time were really into this album with the, with the new singer that everybody hated, but we really liked it. And I remember reading an interview with the guy. I can't remember his name. And this is so funny, but this what he said here has stuck with me my whole life. And he said, sometimes I listen to bad albums because there's just as much to learn from what somebody does wrong as what they do right. Mm, interesting. And that's kind of how I feel about watching these random movies. Like, hey, let me put this on. What's this? Okay, there's a movie called The Borrowers. It's made for kids. Not a great movie. But there's just certain things where you're like, Hugh Laurie is pretty awesome because I didn't recognize him for like five minutes. And just these little small things. And you're going to pull something out, but that's you have to put that mindset on. You have to put on the mindset of the the analyzer, the the open. You have to be open to anything. I, lately, too, I've been starting to realize the, the, the power of parody as well. Um I, I was on a weird kick um, over the last couple of weeks of, of finding some of my old favorite movies. I, it all started with Spaceballs. And I, don't get me wrong, it was funny when, when, when I watched it in my you know teen years and early 20s, but I didn't appreciate how clever that movie really, really was until I had a chance to watch it lately. It is... It is, it is my favorite movie now on many levels, um, at least on a comedy, uh, speaking from a comedy perspective, but Spaceballs is amazing, um, which dives me down a whole completely different rabbit hole of, you know, Big Trouble in Little China, um, Airplane, and a bunch of, a host of those other movies that, that have cemented themselves in my head as being some of the most clever movies ever written, um, not just the funniest, but cleverest as well, for their, their satirical value and their parody. It's kind of like going back, which I've been doing a little bit of recently, and watching old Simpsons episodes, like season one, season two, where they hadn't really dialed the show in the way that they have it now, but there's still that wit. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, there's, there's a, I was just watching an episode yesterday, and they go, um, Bart's, it's, I think it's the first time you see Nelson the bully, and Bart's, Bart's gonna get his, his butt kicked by Nelson. So he goes to see Grandpa Simpson, and Grandpa Simpson takes him to the um, military supply gun store or whatever. Um, and while they're standing there talking, if you look in the case down below, there's like little boxes of random things, and one of them says, Hitler's teeth. <laughs> <laughs> and and then that, that little thing is only one thing in that scene, but in later, that's what the Simpsons would be all about. Because there'd be like eight to ten of those things in every scene, uh, so I know exactly what you mean. You go, it, sometimes you you know you watch things and you laugh, but then the second time you go through and you go, now I'm paying attention. I, I find too that I'm also appreciating um, certain things that I I didn't really get uh, when when other people were raving about them, and you'll you'll be happy to hear this. And Crystal, who is you know twenty feet from me, will be happy to hear this as well, but. I'm finally coming around to Futurama. I finally am starting to get it a little bit. And, <laughs> and, and I'm starting to really appreciate how funny it actually is because of how deep the satire is um, and how, how, how strong the parody is in, in each and every episode. So I, 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 I 
given my given that I hadn't really watched it during the era in which it was most popular, I didn't really I didn't really give it as much of a chance as I feel like I should have. And now that I've watched the other night, I, I just watched three episodes in a row uh, from the very very beginning, um, just to just to give it a real chance, just to give it a real shot. And I I finally now I'm starting to get why why both you, Crystal, and pretty much every other reasonably intelligent person I know really likes that show. Um, because there's, there's, yeah, exactly. You know, obsessed with that show. I'm, I'm finally starting to get it. So I, I get where you guys are coming from now. <laughs> oh man, that show is just, you know, what the one thing about leaving Netflix and Hulu is I lost access to every single episode of Futurama at any time I want it, mm-hmm. as well as How I Met Your Mother <laughs> and Star Trek The Next Generation. Three shows that I always seem to dip into. When I don't have something specific to watch, uh, I'll probably just end up buying all of those things on iTunes. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, I ended those, up doing that too as well. Yeah, those are things that, that I'm never going to be like, "Why did I buy that?" Those are things I'm going to carry with me my whole life. It's um, funny and those... that you say that because because I have I have movies like that 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 have gone from every device that I've had movies that I I always will fall back on. Eternal Sunshine yeah, of a Spotless Mind. Yeah, I hear you. Dark Knight for that, me is one of them too. I love that movie for some reason. Amelie um, is one for me that I bought like six times in six different oh yeah. formats. Oh yeah, Amelie I have in VHS, uh, DVD, um, iTunes, <laughs> Blu-ray. I mean, I've got every version of that movie ever made. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, I hear you. And then those those are great things. I think that that's one of the things that um, going back to this idea of minimalism that we've been talking a lot about recently. One of the things you start to realize when you start minimizing your access, your exposure to infinite options is you start realizing the things that matter. And for me, and I think it's the same for you, um, what you start to find is the more time you invest in those things that are important to you, um, the more you get out of them and the more, um, I don't know, you just blossom as a person by, you know, watching your favorite movie once a month it does something to you in a way that seeing a hundred new movies won't ever do. Sure. And it it's it's like a, going back and rereading books. There's there's a value in focusing on those things that are important, or at least that we place importance on. Maybe is a better way to say it. Um, and I think we lose touch with that because of the ability to have anything we want at any time. You know, it's it. I've done it before, and I'm sure anybody listening here, at least at one point, has done it. Wanted to see a movie and been baffled by the fact that it wasn't on Netflix, wasn't on Hulu. I couldn't watch it on Amazon, and I couldn't even buy it on iTunes. My God. You know, it's like, you know, it's, it's shocking to us that we can't have it within five minutes. Ten years ago, if they didn't have it in the video store, you'd have to wait. You know, <laughs> oh, I remember that. I remember that when you when you'd go to the new releases section at Blockbuster and they're just all the DVDs are gone and you have to wait for three days before someone will bring it back. Or even worse, it's something that they they just don't even have. you know it's like an older movie they don't have. Sure, yeah. You just had to remember and hope that one day you'd run across the ability to see that film. Oh, I remember <laughs> going to four different places to find a copy of the Letterbox version of Schindler's List. I literally remember that journey. It took me it took me a full like 48 hours to find a DVD. And it was probably worth it. Oh, totally worth it. I still have that copy to this day. So yeah, completely. I feel like that that's that's one of the things that I really appreciate about minimalism. Um actually I didn't intend to talk about this, but um 
there's a podcast called The Minimalists, and obviously that's what they talk about all the time. Um, their show is kind of more of a question and answer based format. Um, they have a lot of like millions of listeners, so they have lots of questions. Um, but recently, I've been noticing that they're getting a lot of um, undue criticism, uh, especially about their. They, you and I have mentioned actually their documentary before. I, mm-hmm. I think it's just called Minimalism. Um, and people people are accusing them of things like, "Oh, minimalism is just white privilege," and all, <laughs> all these just really mean things. Wow! And that's that's like the nicest thing, you know. There's way meaner stuff that people said, um, but that. I, that whole idea baffles me is that we're so entrenched in this idea of culture that people who don't have money that's oh that was one of the criticisms that somebody said they said want to try minimalism try being poor and mm. <laughs> both of these guys grew up poor so i mean they they know but I, I just think that we're so entrenched in this idea of having and owning and collecting and and being able to have everything we want at all times that we are offended by the fact that somebody wouldn't want that, sure. that somebody wouldn't want access to everything, and I wonder, I, I wonder what that is. I, I feel like in some way, maybe it, it feels like a threat to our ability to have access to those things. And like, if oh, if everybody doesn't want this, then I might, there not, might not be a market for it, and, and then I might lose it. I, I don't know. It's or maybe it's just the internet being assholes, like they can be. Well, I, I think it's the, the reverse of validation in the sense that if, if these two guys who are wildly popular and who seem to be living happy lives can live happy lives without the stuff that you think makes you happy, then it automatically devalues everything that that you, you consider to be the, the cornerstones of your happiness. And I actually kind of feel like that's the point. Um, that's the reason they're doing it is to, to strip away all of the things that think that you think make you happy and 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 really drill down to the things that really do inspire you and that really do do give you a reason to to smile every day. You know, if we, I remember you know a thread that you and I were on just with Carlos and 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 John talking about how just the act of smiling every day or, or forcing yourself to smile changes the entire perception of the day. You know, it changes your your reactions to people, changes people's reactions to you. Um, and I feel like I feel like the the the, the backlash that the minimalist guys. Are getting is is just purely based on the fact that that they're they're valuing things that or they're they're taking away the value of things that people hold assign so much value to and so because of that it feels like an affront to to the lives that that, that most people have chosen to live um, you know based on collecting things and owning things and having things and and using that as a way to to determine whatever your status is in a, a given society or group of people so definitely I feel like. I feel like the backlash is is inevitable, and I feel like it's 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 validating to them in the sense that if they didn't get a backlash, then I think there'd be something wrong with what they were doing. And I think that that's something I want to say to everybody that's listening is, um, in no way are we ever telling you guys what you should or shouldn't do, what's right or what's wrong. Um, just because I don't have Hulu and Netflix doesn't mean that Lamb doesn't or that you shouldn't. Oh, I totally um, do. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but what one of the most important things, um, reeling this back to the focus of the show, because I did go on a tangent there. Um, the reason minimalism is important to me, and um, I think to you as well, Lam, uh, is like you said, it's about focusing on the value. Um, 
And that's important to your creativity. Because if you're not a happy person, how do you expect to create anything, to bring anything into the world? If you were full of bitterness, then you will be blind to, like what I was saying before about um, being blind to the flaws in the story that I was, that I'm working on. If you are full of bitterness and anger, you're going to be blind to those things too. So you're not going to make things of value. If you're lucky enough to be able to break through that bitterness long enough to complete anything. Uh, and, and even though like we, you know, we said we didn't really like the thin red line and we didn't like, um, anything that Lars von Trier's made. I don't think that means that either of them should stop making things. Oh, of course uh, not. Yeah, that's not the intention at all, of course. Every, everybody has a voice. Everybody has a um, a right to express themselves and to make things. And going back to these guys, the minimalists, uh, so if people don't like hearing what they have to say, don't watch, don't listen. Uh, I feel like that there's, there's this culture of where people have to um, plant a flag. Um I have to plant this flag so that people know that I didn't like this. Sure. So that, so in the future, when other people decide they don't like it, they'll know I was there first. And that's, that, that type of thinking is never going to make you happy and it's never going to make you a good artist. Um, if you ever notice that the very successful artists, um, from actors to musicians, uh, they hang out with other actors and musicians that maybe don't make the same kind of music or same kind of movies that they do. That, you know, like when you see Slash talking to, I don't know, like Lindsay Lohan. And that's, that's baffling because it seems like two different worlds. No, they're the same world. They're the world of people who make things. And they don't make fun of, you know, like, uh, they don't make fun of Jessica Simpson because they like to listen to ACDC. Because they respect each other in, and in the difficulty it is that it takes to, number one, to achieve the level that they've achieved, but to continually make things and put them to the public, to put yourself out there in a way to be criticized. Um, because you, by being an artist, you are making yourself vulnerable in a way that most people are not willing to be. I like the, the thing that you said though about about well, I mean, you've said it a number of times on the podcast, but you know, art is inherently generous, um, and I think the extension of that is, I think, creativity is also inherently positive. And for me, for example, like I, the last couple of weeks, um, you know, I, I've, I've had my struggles and things have been difficult, but um, I'm in a wonderful relationship with an amazing person, and so because of that, I feel like there's there's a happiness that that comes from that that's that sense of just core positivity, and so. Because of that, I find myself compelled to to do certain things. Like now, for example, I hadn't thought about music, you know, or creating music of any kind for for quite some time, and I feel like a big part of the reason why that was was because I was really unhappy. Um, and so lately, for example, I can't I can't help but but play any piano I see. Um, I can't help but think about music and listen to music and want to watch movies and want to watch. Um, TV shows or read poems or, or books that I haven't read in a while. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that being happy inherently inspires you to, to search for the creative things, to search for the beautiful things in the world. And then by extension makes you want to create beautiful things as well. So I, I definitely feel like there's a very strong thread of positivity that, 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 that in, in, in inspires creativity in a way that nothing else can. Yeah, there's that huge, mythos of the tortured artist, right? 
that you have to be tortured to be an artist. Well, what people don't realize when we talk about the tortured artist is somebody may be suffering, they may be having problems, but in, in reality, who isn't? Who doesn't have something they have to overcome? Sure. Um, you know, somebody's somebody's pebble is somebody else's mountain, but it's still a mountain, even though you know it's small to somebody else. It's still their mountain. And when when people are creating, you know, you think of somebody like Vincent Van Gogh. We think of him probably as the epitome of the quote unquote tortured artist. Sure. I guarantee you that when the man was standing in a field, painting crows flying over um, the the fields, that he wasn't tortured. He wasn't in pain. That was probably his one moment of joy, was sure. when he was creating. The, the the art of creating was a solace for him. Or or for people um, like, um, I think his name was Augustin Burroughs, um, the running with scissors guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he He had a great deal of pain in his childhood. And for him, creating and putting that into the story was a way out of that pain. Because he, he wasn't trying to wallow in it and stay in that pain. He was using art as a way to get out of it so that he could get to being happy. Um, so I, I think you're absolutely right that uh, this is something that took me a long time to realize. But the, the act of creation is ultimately about joy. Sure. It's, it's, it's a pleasure to make things. And if it isn't, then you're faking something or you're unhappy. Um, so <laughs> I guess my biggest creative advice would be, Get happy. <laughs> Do yeah. something that makes you feel good. And, and and the other side of that, too, for me, especially the last couple of weeks, you know, I've struggled with health things. Um, there have been some some darker things that have happened um, over the last couple of weeks. Um, yeah, I won't get into specifics, but let's just say it's been, it's been a difficult couple of months. Um, but I find that I can still remain inherently positive because I, 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 I'm trying to find... Just purely for the sake of maintaining my own sanity, I'm trying to find more creative things, not just to 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 consume, but to to produce as well. And and so because of that, I feel, despite how difficult things are, I still feel like I'm in I'm in good spirits, which sounds crazy considering what's going on. Um, but I, you know, like for example, when we're talking on this podcast, I feel inspired and 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 creative and happy, and I I feel like that's a that's a great lesson, not just for for, for other people, but for us as, you know, for us, the two of us, um, this is what we look forward to. And, and I think the act of talking about creativity and the act of, of, of creating the podcast itself is definitely something that inspires me to, to keep doing what I'm doing when it comes to, to searching for the avenues of happiness that I've found both in, in my personal life as well as in my creative life. And I think that that's something that for me took a long time to really piece together was this idea of creativity being something that makes my life better. Um, sure. You know, going, going back to the emotions uh, uh, you were talking about, is the, when, we, when we focus on something, we, we make it grow. We invest mm-hmm. in it. So if you're miserable and, or there's, let's not even say if you're miserable, if there's, like you said, bad things happening around you, because you can't avoid that, bad things will happen. You know, um, people will die, um, people will leave, um, jobs will be lost. Uh, things like that are going to happen. We don't have control of those things. Storms will come. But if you focus on th- those things, you make them grow within you. 
Sure. Um, they, they no longer become a circumstance, but now they become an identity that you, you're breeding within yourself. So by having something to create, something to work on, this is why creativity is so important to me. Because if, if bad things are happening in your life, but you're working on a novel, and your focus and your obsession is with that novel, or a film, or, or song, or album, your, your focus is going to be on that thing. So those other things are going to roll off you more easily. Um, because you've put your focus and your effort into this purpose and, and purpose will define you. And it, if, even if you make something just for yourself, you're, you're, you're giving yourself an opportunity, an opportunity to, to move through things in a way that I wish I had known when I was 22 years old. Sure. Um, and, and like, here's a question for you. Can you ever, can you think of any time in your life? You and I both have suffered with anxiety. Can you think of ever think of a time in your life when you were totally creative and completely anxious at the same time? Wow. Um, not really. I don't think it's possible. Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. Actually, I'm I'm trying to to, to rummage through my my the, the, the especially in the the most recent chunk of my life where anxiety was a big part of my daily routine and, 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 and environment, I, I definitely wasn't creative. I was the opposite of creative. I, I, I shunned creativity. I feel like I didn't listen to music for a solid three months of my life because I was so horribly stressed out, very, very anxiety-ridden. Anxiety requires so much focus mm-hmm. that I, I don't think that we could be creative because we've, we've invested all of that energy into the anxiety. Um, I think you and I talked about this in, in that text conversation you were mess, um, mentioning earlier. This idea of uh, me losing my train of thought right in the middle of a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> it happens, folks. It happens. Uh, <laughs> Get it I back. No Get idea. it back. <laughs> I have no idea what I was just going to say. Um, focus is obviously not what I was what I was having right then. <laughs> it's got to be something anxiety related, creativity related, somewhere along those lines. Yeah, well, we'll just have to hope it comes back. But I do want to mention while we're still in this realm, though, is what you let in, the door that you open also affects a lot of things, too. Um, be aware, we're, we're always consuming things. We're always ingesting things at all times, whether we want to or not. There's always a song playing somewhere. There's always a commercial. There's always something that's coming at us. And one of those things for me was social media. And there's a lot a lot of anger um, in this country and specifically online right now um, in both directions um, politically. Actually, if you were just to, to be narrow-minded and say there are only two political directions, but in every direction you can imagine, there's just a lot of anger, a lot of vitriol, um, and a lot of despair for, um, for, both, both, um, for both ends of it. Um, and I think that that was just too much for me. Even just dipping in um, to see something, it, it was leaking in. And I, so I had to like start reducing that a little bit, you know, keep that out. But then when I started to really realize, when I started to think about social media, it wasn't really about the window in so much as the window out. Sure. Um, which Which means that uh, just as much as, 
uh, I could say that there's, there's a lot of angry people out there. I can say that I have anger myself because I'm no different than anyone else. And having a window to pour that out whenever I want is never a healthy thing. You know, when you're, when, when you're opening, um, an app on your phone, it doesn't want to open. It only takes you about three seconds to yell at the developer on Twitter. <laughs> that's a window. That's a window you have to be, to be a jerk. Um, and I didn't want that window anymore. Um, I'm not saying that I deleted my social media accounts, but what I did, and you know this, is I, I took them off my phone. Um, and it's about reclaiming my time as well, um, which in the long run is the message that I want to get out of it, is that all those times when I'm – I actually wrote a short thing about this. Um, I'll put a link to it below if you guys feel like reading it. It's about two-minute read. But basically it was it's this idea of you know when you're when you're waiting for a table in a restaurant – Sure, you can pop in and look at some Instagram photos. You can check in on Twitter. You can check CNN. You can you know do whatever's go- whatever's available, or you could take those things off your phone, keep your phone in your pocket, and look around you. Listen, see the people around you. Uh, write down what somebody's doing because maybe you'll use that for a story someday. Draw a picture of something that's in front of you. Take that time to just be there to be present, um, there's, there's a never ending source of inspiration for creative things around you at all times. I saw there's a guy who named Lee John Phillips. He's one of my current favorite artists. Um, he, his grandfather died and he took a pen and a notebook and he went in and in, in his grandfather's backyard, there was a shed, um, and in the shed were hundreds of tools and screws and nuts and all these, you know, things that an older man acquires in a tool shed. And instead of just cleaning it out, he decided he's going to take that notebook and that pen and he was going to draw every single item that was in there before he got rid of it. Holy cow. He drew hundreds of bolts and screws alone. Jeez. And, and they're, amazing drawings, amazing drawings. This will all be linked below. Yeah, please. I, I'd love to see that. <laughs> that is, I think it's called the, the work shed project, I think is, or the tool shed project. Um, and it's all just black and white drawings, um, pen and ink. And that is the epitome of what I mean. I could sit in my room right now and I could draw every little object that's in this room and have a book of sketches sure that's art that's 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 true art that's that's looking and absorbing and being alive is part of art and the more that you divest yourself from that the more that you separate yourself from that the harder time it is to be inspired and i think that that's maybe part of the reason why this book is going so well for me is because i i'm more present i'm also happier too i have less anxiety so both of the things we're talking about it's based on a conversation that that we had with uh, you know on that that running text that we had as well um, about smiling um, you know about being inherently generous as a person and I feel like I I did an experiment after we had that conversation I smiled at at strangers not in a creepy way so no one make that assumption but you know I would just smile at strangers I would put my phone in my pocket I I did this for almost a three day span um, you know whenever I was when I was alone I would do the things I needed to on my phone. Um, but whenever I was in a public place where there were people around, 
I would make it a point to make eye contact with people and smile at strangers. And the amount of people that, that smiled back, um, and how, how much better I felt about my day because of that is, is, is shocking. Um, and it, it inspired me to do a, a lot more, um, not just creatively, but just with my day. I felt like I had more time, that I had more energy, that I had more purpose through my day. And so I feel like that's, that's a big part of what we're talking about as well. And for me too, um, I've told you this before, but, um, the thing about smiling to me for one of the big things about the smiling all the time is doing it whenever I walk past a mirror, smiling mm-hmm. at myself. <laughs> I haven't tried that yet. For two, two reasons. Number one, the reason that, um, when you smile at someone that they smile back, that they feel better. And the reason you feel better when they smile back to you is our mirror neurons, right? Um, mm-hmm. we're, we're inherently, uh, pack animals as humans. So it's, it's, uh, evolutionary beneficial to us to share emotions. You know, sure. when one, when one person is scared, the other person should be scared too, because there's probably a reason. Mm-hmm. And when one, one person's happy, the other person should be happy so that they can share it. Um, so your brain doesn't know the difference between you and the mirror and another person. So when you smile at yourself, you're giving yourself the same benefit you give to somebody else. When you smile, you're, mir- you're, you're firing your mirror neurons, but also he grew up and taught himself to read at, at an incredibly young age, like you said, five. And something about that process just made him voracious in his learning. But he never lost touch with that child. With yeah. that, and, and I think that's uh, – this is supposition on my part. But I think that's why he – his whole life was dedicated to that idea of taking this information – and making sure that other people could understand it because that's sure. all he wanted was to understand it. Sure. And, and given that he had to take these incredibly complex, uh, concepts, you know, I, I can't imagine that his parents really knew what to pick for him to read when they were, uh, when he was that young. I mean, you know, what, what do you read to a five-year-old? What do you, what, how does a, a five-year-old learn to read? You know, I, I look at the parallels in my own life and my parents being immigrants, you know, they had no idea, um, what was right for me when it came to, to, to my reading list. So they never read me kids books. You know, um, I got my hands on things like, um, you know, Jack London very early on. I, I, and when I'm say early on, I mean like seven or eight years old, you know, I, my, I accidentally bought a complete works of William Shakespeare, um, when I was 10 years old at a used book sale at a library and my parents didn't know any better. So I was reading Macbeth at 10. Um, so I feel like, his ability to simplify comes from his need to have simplified for himself in order to understand those concepts. And yeah, I agree with you. I think it became a lifelong thing, a lifelong desire of his to take these incredibly lofty concepts and make them so that every person could understand them. And I think that, um, I don't know if he was conscious of that, but it's definitely, it was his purpose. It's, it's the purpose he ended up serving. And I think that it serves us all to understand to some degree what our purpose is as, as not only as human beings, but in specifically uh, in reference to this podcast as creators. I mean, like uh, we say in the show, these are studies in creativity. What are we learning about Isaac Asimov that we can apply to ourselves as creative people? Number one, that you're more capable of any, you're capable of more than you believe you are. If he can write 500 books, you can probably write 10. You're, or one. <laughs> yeah. You're completely capable of that. And there's nothing stopping you but yourself. 
But other things uh, is what is your purpose? What is it that you want more than anything to achieve? And how are you using what you create to do that? And I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot, Lamb. Just you don't have to live by this for the rest of your life. But if I were to ask you that question right now, which I am, what would your answer be? What specifically, what is it that I want to achieve as an artist? Yeah, or as a human that you're using your art to achieve. Oh, man. Oh, that's that is a tough one. Right. It is. And I feel like it's while you think about that, I'm going to um, wax poetic for a minute here. Yeah, thank you. Give, I, I'm going to need some time on that one. <laughs> go, go as crazy as you want on that. I'm going to need some time. <laughs> this is this. This is not a new concept. Uh, this idea. It's if you read enough about marketing, you read enough about making businesses. Uh, you read a book like um, Simon Sinek's Start With Why um, or Marty Neumeier's Zag. Um, the concept here is that you cannot create something. You cannot achieve goals unless you know your purpose, unless you, you know, what what is your business? What is your art? What Why are you doing it? You know, Simon Sinek says if you start with why, then everything else comes in, into place because why is what holds everything together. Why do we make this? If you can answer that, then you can figure out the what and then the how. Um, most people do it backwards. We start with the what. What do I want to make? What do I want? No. Why do you want to make? Then when you understand why, then you'll know what. And for uh, Isaac Asimov, what he wanted to create came after his why. His why was, I, I, I love science. And because I love science, I want to make other people understand science. I want to make it so that other people can understand science. Okay, what do I need to make to do that? Books. Books are the way to do it. That's how I learned it. Books are the way to do it. How? Well, I can write books of explanation, nonfiction books, and I can write science fiction novels. And now you have his whole career. And I think it's important to take the time to digest that idea and to really apply it to yourself. If you are going to be a creator, if you are going to do things, know why you're doing it. And always keep an eye on that why. And if the why changes, the what's and the how's change too. So huh. it's, it's, it's a question that we should all be asking ourselves continually. And if you guys haven't read Start With Why by Simon Sinek, put that on the to-read list as well. It's a brilliant book and it's applied to any field that any human being can take on. Somebody, a, a quarterback for a NFL team could read that book and get value out of it. Um, how's it coming, Lamb? <laughs> I, I think I've got it. Um, and I think it's, it's regardless of how many twists and turns it's taken throughout the course of my life, I think the goal has always kind of been the same. Uh, it's an interesting question in that it makes you ask yourself what your core drive has been. Um, and, and most of your life it's, it's subconscious. So I guess for me, um, you know, I was having this long conversation with Crystal yesterday about, about how, uh, I'm not going to bring religion into this. I'm not going to do it. Um, <laughs> I thought about it, um, but but I guess the 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 overriding theme is that there are certain things that human society and humans in general do that stunts their ability to grow or evolve as as individuals and as a culture. Um, and I think that for me, it's always been about 
freeing people up from the preconceived notions about what they think their lives can be or should be or what they're capable of. And I think that's part of the reason why I do this podcast. Um, it's part of the reason why I play golf. It's part of the, the reason I teach golf. Um, it's part of the reason why I, I, I liked doing you know, workshops and I like teaching is because I want people to realize that nothing is impossible. Um, that nothing is, is outside of their scope of, 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 of capability if they allow themselves to think beyond what society or what they've created for themselves as expectations. So yeah, I guess, I guess that for me is it is to, to make people realize that they're capable of anything, make them realize that they're capable of more and not in some, chewy granola hippie kind of way um you know not i i'm not saying this in a peace pipe around a fire kind of way i'm saying this in a very real very capable kind of way um in the sense that if you really want to do it then map out the steps that will get you to what it is that you want to do and then just start doing it and and i i think you know back to to the golf analogy for me for example um I think I constantly test myself on this throughout the course of my life. Um, you know, when I was when I was a writer, I I, I I challenged myself to write a certain number of things, to get published, to write a certain style, to be able to do a certain thing. When it came to golf, for example, I I, I set a goal for myself, and then I I tried my best to to reach and exceed beyond that goal as quickly as possible. Um, and so for me, it's about it's really about showing people how to 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 be dedicated towards something, to, to to work towards something, and to realize that that the only limits that that exist are the ones that you impose for yourself, and anything else is just is just you not wanting to put in the time or the work necessary in order to be whatever it is that you wanted to be or do whatever it is that you wanted to do. Exactly, and to be honest, my answer is almost exactly the same. <laughs> That's why we're doing this podcast, I guess. Well, yeah, for me, like a lot of it, um, a lot of the focus is specifically on action, that first action, at least in the last few years. I see so many people that want to do things, that want to achieve things. They say, you know, I want to write this, I want to do this, but they're not taking any action. Sure. And it, it, it's fear. It is. It's, it's, it's this fear of imperfection in reality is what it is. Uh, you know, like we've talked about this many times before on and off the podcast, the idea of the first draft, um, the problem people can't get through the first draft. And this is, a, this is, I'm specifically talking about writing, but use it as a metaphor for anything because everything has a first draft. Um, call it a prototype if you prefer. Uh, the first draft is, the only purpose of the first draft is to get to the end. And most people never make it to the end of the first draft. They don't make it to the end of the first draft because there's this image of what they want in their head. And because it's in their head, it doesn't exist in the tangible world. It is liquid. It can shapeshift. So every time a problem comes up, it can tweak a little bit and a little bit. So it always stays perfect. But the moment you put it on that page, the moment you try to bring it into the world limitations are upon it sure it has a physical form it exists and that's what people fear when it comes to creating um when it, bringing something into the world is that they know that once those limitations are on it it's not going to be that perfect amorphous blob that's inside of their head um uh, but th what they don't realize is that until you bring it into the world you can't actually shape it 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 
as it exists there, it doesn't exist because it is nothing. Um, so for me, it's always about that first draft, getting people to, you want to do that, do it. If you say you do that first draft and you're never able to edit that book, at least you got that first draft out. And the next time you do something else, you might go a step further. You might go a step further. But if you don't take that first step, you're not bringing anything into the world. You know, this is this year, politics are a huge, huge thing with this election. And I'm not going to go into that. I'm just going to say that as simply as possible. People in this election have talked a lot about change. They want things to change. They want this. They want that. Until you do things, until you act, nothing changes. You're just you know what? floating. Go ahead. Sorry. That's okay. Yeah. You, you know, you know what I hold on to through all of these things, like the the examinations of of fear and all that kind of stuff. I think I think the biggest thing for me, the the biggest thing that I had to get over, and I think the the, the biggest thing that most people have to get over is something that I didn't really realize until very recently. Um, you know, I was working with uh, Remy, who is a, a mutual friend of ours, um, and I'm helping him build a golf swing, and it is a torturous thing for him. Uh, because he's grown up his whole his whole life as an athlete. He's also a very, very smart guy. He's run his own businesses. He's a very successful, smart guy, but he's terrible at this. He's terrible at golf. Can't hit the golf ball to save his life. And and you know, he's he's early on, so you know, obviously there's 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 a lot of growing for him to do in order for him to get good at it. But the thing that I keep thinking when I think of of, of the process with him is it's okay to fail, but it's not okay to give up. And I think that that's that's the thing that I, I I will I will take with me through these experiences, the things that I've learned with with myself and the things that I've learned teaching other people is you can fail often. You can fail all the time. You can write that first draft and it could be a piece of garbage, but you can't give up. You got to write a second one. You got to write a third one and a fourth one. Same thing with the golf swing. You got to hit another ball and another ball and another ball. And sooner or later, if you have the will you will you will make it. You will achieve it. You'll pull off whatever it is that you wanted to do, if you don't give up. And nothing nothing ever has been achieved but through failure. Sure. There is nothing that has been done that hasn't included a failure. So it, if you're avoiding a failure, you're avoiding this fear of of, of imperfection. You're avoiding living. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Life, life is screwed up and life is wonderful. It's both. It's not one or the other. You got to get out of that binary mindset. And I think that that's, it, it, it's like this slave mentality that people put themselves into. And it, it's, it's of no use. And yeah. look at somebody like Isaac, Isaac Asimov. Like I said, do you, when he sat down at the typewriter, I don't think he ever said, hmm, is this book worth writing? No, he never said that. He's like, I have a book. I'm going to write it. And he put it out into the world. If people didn't read it and didn't think it was of value, that was the choice to be made after it was created. But he didn't make that decision before it was created. So we can't make decisions about what something is or whether it deserves to exist before it exists, with the exception of, you know, humanity killing robots. We should probably think about that first. (laughs) And maybe electing the wrong person. Those are things we should think about first. But as far as creating... Just make, just make stuff. It's important. <laughs> I, I feel like I, I feel like that you know, like for me, maybe even there, there's a, a zero with law of creativity for me is 
in the sense that I want people to make things because when people make things, the world is a better place. Sure. Uh, creativity, I say this over and over again, creativity is generous by nature. You can't help but be a good, generous person through the act of creation. It, it makes it, I don't know. It's If you make a movie and then you go see another movie and the movie is kind of bad, you're a little bit kinder to that person because you know what the process of making a movie is. Sure. Uh, it just makes you understand that, you know, like we, we hear people release horrible albums all the time. Yeah. And, but you never hear other people other than Kanye talking bad about other artists. You know, oh, that, sure. that album that they did was awful. You know, you see people like uh, Slash, for example, will say, hanging out with somebody like, uh, I don't know, like Jessica Simpson. Wow, that was out of nowhere. Um, and you go, that's weird. But no, it's not really weird because they probably know more about each other than we know about them. You know, sure. Because they they make the same kind of art in the sense that they make music. They put something out there for the world to judge. Um, it's not even that their music is similar or even that they're doing music that's similar. It's that they're creating things and putting it into the world. And that vulnerability of putting something into the world can't help but tie those people together. So if we're all creators, then we're tied together through that vulnerability. It's funny that you say that. I never really thought about that till now. Um, you know, I, I never really consider any book that I've read as bad. I may not like it, but I, I, I think that because the more I write, the more I realize how just monumentally difficult that process is. Most of the time, I assume it's me, that I'm in the wrong place or that I wasn't paying attention enough, that the, yeah. the, the book isn't flawed. I was flawed while I was reading it. Like Don Quixote, I did not like that book. It's considered one of the greatest things ever written. I didn't like it. I think maybe I didn't pay attention enough. I don't put it on Cervantes. I put it on me. It's funny. I, I Not to draw the parallel, but to definitely draw the parallel is I just rewatched The Princess Bride the other day uh, for the first time in like eight years. And I watched that movie when I was younger and thought it was the stupidest movie I'd ever, I'd ever seen. Um, but I realized now that in, in watching it just, uh, you know, last week that I was finally in the right mindset and I thought it was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> That's why I think going back to art is so important. Rereading books who, you know, we've talked about it before with Catcher in the Rye. Who yeah. knows, you know, like just think about you as a person and then think about who you were 15 years ago. Jeez. You're, you're the same person, but you're not the same person. You could have a conversation with that person and disagree. Totally. You know? and, and that there's that much difference. And all of those versions of ourselves, they don't die. And they don't evolve into the person that we are. They all exist in our brain. We're living with all these hundreds of thousands of versions of ourselves existing in our brain. And one pops up at one point and one pops up at another point. All of these exist inside of us. So we're at war with it. But we have to accept the fact that it's a different person approaching this art. You have to give yeah, it. And there, and there, and there are times where subconsciously you create a person that you need in order to, to survive the life that you currently have. Like I know, I know for, for a period of time there, I, I created a very specific version of myself in order to deal with emotional trauma. And, and you know, they, they, that person I'd absolutely hate. I, I probably, you know, looking back at who that person was, I, I detested some of the choices that that version of me made, but I, but I can't, I can't help 
but also understand why that person needed to exist in the time that that person did. So no, I totally, but that person will always be a part of me now. I can't, I can't shy away from the idea that that that's inherently a part of who I am now as a person. I know that I'm capable of that now. And I know that that person, even despite the fact that I didn't like them that much was a very necessary part of who I was in order to survive what my situation was. Well, it's like what Nietzsche said, man can endure anyhow, given the proper why. You know, you can you can live through anything given the right reason, and you can become anything given the right reason. People think that they're not capable of horrible things, but put in the right situation, they are. And that's yeah. what ties us all together. We're not all different people in the sense we're all the same person, but we're living with different versions of that person. And I, th- I think that an exercise that I discovered recently that it's, like I talked about, I've been focusing a lot about positivity, um, trying to you know, not think negative thoughts so that my back doesn't get tense and I'm not in pain, but also to become a happier person. Because sure. I, I realized that as I've gotten older, um, this idea of happiness has kind of slipped away from me, that I that I exist um, almost in this like animalistic state where this is what I do and this is how I react. But I don't really um, find pleasure in many things. So I've been trying to rediscover ways to find pleasure and to be happy, you know, so that I can live many, many more years without uh, completely dissolving into a cloud of nothing. And one of the things that I've discovered that's really interesting is think about this. When you're creating something, um, say you're doing a drawing. When you're done with that drawing, instead of looking at it as you now and criticizing it, go back to the a version of you that was learning how to draw. Remember that person and let that version of you look at what you just did. Because that version of you, that 10-year-old, that 6-year-old with the crayon that looks at the thing you just drew is going to have their mind blown. The fact <laughs> that they're capable of doing that. It's almost like taking a tra- you know, traveling in time and talking to a former version of yourself. You don't need to do that because all these versions of us exist inside of us. We never lose these. You know, that's what's in all the back storage of our mind is our life and uh, the different versions and different impulses that we've had and different emotions that we've had, they all exist in there. So dig into those and, and learn to appreciate what you're capable of now. So instead of going into something with doubt, go into it with enthusiasm be like, I have worked for 30 years at drawing and this is how far I've come. And it's, it's a, it's an incredible exercise. It really is if, with writing, with anything. I mean, like even, you know, like w- with golf, Lamb. Think about the kid who first picked up that golf club. When you go out and you are at the driving range, give that kid a minute to watch what you're doing. You know, it's funny that you say that because um, I, I think that, that golf has actually taught me to do that very, very well. Um, golf is probably the most uh, – it, it's the most Asimov I've ever gotten in my life. Um, in the sense that I know exactly how hard it's been. And I think a lot of it is because of how, how, how ruthlessly dedicated I was to it. Um, I realize exactly how hard it's been. I realize, um, exactly what steps I needed to take to get there. And I know exactly what I'm capable of. Like I, I realize I'm a pretty decent golfer, but I also know very clearly what it is that I need to do next in order to become that much better. And, there's a ruthless discipline that comes along from it um, that 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 makes it so that I, I I've learned this in other parts of my life, um, 
and yeah, so I do take that, that backward glance quite a bit. I, I take stock of how far I've come and I, I, I'll, I'll stand there and I'll smack my eight iron and I'll think of, um, you know, those first early days. Uh, and I think it's helpful that I teach too as well. So I think, um, I think this is a good lesson for, for most other people is that, you know, if you're really, really good at something, try to share it, try to teach it, try to show other people what, what, what joy or what benefits they can get out of it. And in doing so, you remind yourself of how much you got out of it and how important it was to you and how, how, how special it is that you can, you can get good at something or that you can, you can value something to that degree or create something even. And that's the Asimov lesson, right? Absolutely. He, he could have kept all the science that he learned to himself. Instead, he wrote over 500 books. Good God. <laughs> I mean, that's about as generous as you can get. I mean, the guy got as close to opening up a vein and pouring it into somebody's mouth as you possibly can get. Jeez. I mean, you, you think about the, 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 the effect that he has on science and society and how many – I'll, I'll put it to you this way. Um, for anyone who's listening to this podcast, read enough Asimov. Like read the Foundation series. You know, Read, read the Robot series. Read the Empire series. Um, read a bunch of the short stories. And then go back and think about every piece of science fiction you've ever read or watched since, the, since Asimov um, wrote those. And you'll see how – deep and dramatic of an influence he's had on everything ever created in the world of science. And that's kind of one of the most beautiful things about science fiction as a genre. A lot of genres, you know, they there isn't this um, interplay between uh, books like there is with science fiction, books, movies, um, comic books even. Uh, for example, you know, it's it's not seen as a bad thing to talk about a positronic brain, even though Asimov created that. It's not sure. seen as a sin in science fiction to, to use one of Asimov's theories or to use sure. one of Arthur C. Clarke's series, uh, um, ideas. It's not seen as a bad thing. Like, for example, I was just watching um, – oh, oh, I was playing Fallout 4 yesterday, the video game. Nice. And there's a part where when you're in the Institute, they're making these synths, which are essentially robots, um, and they're splayed out in this circle. Um, like uh, Da Vinci's sketch of man. It's splayed out, and then they dip them into this thing to make their skin, right? Well, if anybody's been watching HBO's Westworld, they did exactly the same thing in making the robots in that show. And it's actually a nod to that game. There, I, I, read, I read an article um, where the creator of that show listed a bunch of things that influenced that show, and on that list was Fallout 4. So... Oh. That's one of the things that I love about science fiction and why I wish I probably read more of it is that, you know, it's like Austin Kleon says, steal like an artist. This over, over here, I want to use that because I can make something new if I use that piece. Okay, use that piece. Don't be afraid to borrow. Don't be afraid to steal. You know, they just give credit where you steal from. Yeah, I, I love that book. It still sits on my uh, it, it sits on my my bedside table pretty much perpetually. I love that book. Yeah, anybody that's another book. I feel like uh, <laughs> at this point we might have to put together a blog entry of books that you should probably read in the next year. Yeah, yeah, true. Um, at least as, as at least as a creative, um, if if you're intending on doing anything creative, there are certain books that. I I can't say they'll they'll influence you necessarily, but they'll they'll inspire you and they'll give you the right tools to to influence. Right. Um, if that if that makes any sense. 
And actually, before we end this, I think it's another change that we haven't mentioned yet is um, because of switching to Fireside, our main website is on the Fireside site, um, which doesn't have a blog because they're already doing enough hosting. So we've actually, we haven't um, completely done it yet, but we have created a publication in Medium. So we're going to be using Medium for blogging. So if you go to randombadassery.com, which will take you to the Fireside site, you will see a link to Medium. And if you follow us on Medium, then you'll be able to see the blog entries. If you're following us on social media, we'll put up the blogs there as well. Um, we just I just had a crazy... I downloaded the Dashboard app for Twitter, which, uh-huh. is, which is essentially... I think it's made for business... Um, but it gives you an ability to see things that a personal Twitter account doesn't like you can create, um, custom search timelines for like, you know, your business name or in our case, our podcast name. Yeah. And I discovered something that I haven't even told you about yet. I discovered that there have been people posting our links to our podcast episodes for like six months that we didn't know about because what? Yeah, we didn't have, well, we didn't have, uh, it wasn't linking to our Twitter handle, so it wasn't showing up in the timeline. So when I put Uh, in random badassery as a search term, I found about 40 posts of stuff that we had made. Whoa. (laughs) And I actually literally just had somebody tweet me yesterday and ask me when the next episode was being made. So I wish I remember that person right now, their name. But to that person, you know who you are. You asked me when it was coming, and I said soon. And when I said soon, I meant tomorrow, which is today. <laughs> so that's uh, what's going on in our world. Any words tomorrow of- is today. That's that's actually a pretty good. That's that's a pretty good quote, actually. Um, to 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 kind of wrap things up here. Tomorrow is today. I feel like if Asimov were alive today, he'd say something like that. <laughs> I think that you should say it as a commercial broadcaster and then we will end with that and for all of you listening out there for us tomorrow is today Uh, i guess uh we there was one thing that we did forget to do uh we've made it a point to kind of put the person that we're going to talk about in the next uh, podcast in this previous episode so um i guess for the next one uh, both chad and i are going for yet another one of our heroes of which we have many um and the next one is going to be nick cave so tune in That's 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 why it's difficult to be a judge. Otherwise, anybody could do it because all you have to do is pull out the book and go. Says not to cross the street. You cross the street. You're fucked. Anybody could do that job. The reason being a judge is difficult is because you have to consider all these other things because every case is unique and individual.
And what I'm seeing online is people acting like a hanging judge. Mm, sure. Not taking into account any individuality. And which then wraps around to the thing we always end up at somehow on this show, which is the death of nuance. It's, it's, it's appalling. It really is appalling. Then nobody gives a shit about those little things anymore. But you know, the only time they care about it is when it, it involves them. You think about these people that say, you know, like, um, I'll get, I, I've since I've uh, at one point espoused the idea of of open borders. Let me give you another argument. There are people who always say, you know, like, immigration is it's a law. If you if you're not a legal citizen, you shouldn't be here, black or white. Mm-hmm. Do those people ever speed? Do those people ever go through the crosswalk when there's a person in the crosswalk? Do those uh, people ever do a California stop where they don't slow down? Do they ever break the law? Of course, of course. they do. Yeah, of course they do. Of course they do. But it doesn't. It doesn't matter because it doesn't count for them because they can see the nuance for themselves. They just don't have a context or an objectivity to see it for other people. Yes. And I think that's the same problem we're having here where we're going, somebody said these words, that makes them racist. But we're not seeing the nuance going that maybe they're not racist. Maybe they just said something stupid. And there's two, that's two very different things because there are, especially when we talk about um, the interpretation of words, like um, in, in the context of racism, sexism, all of these things, these are not clearly defined anywhere. So it's really easy sometimes, and I'm not saying that's what happened in this case, um, but there, it's really easy sometimes to say something that sounds like it might be racist when that's not even what was in your head at all. You're thinking something else. You just chose some, word, chose some words poorly, and somebody has interpretations of those words and context of those words that you're unaware of. Sure. So. Uh, it seems very clear. The reason I bring that up, it seems very clear in the case that nuance is needed there to understand in intent. And um, so even if, you know, this girl said a bad, a stupid joke, if her intent wasn't to be racist, she was just trying to be funny, that intent is important. Sure. Because, because we're making a, a value judgment on a human being, which first of all, I have a huge problem with. Um, but we're making a value judgment on a human being. You know, people giving her death threats and that's insane. Insisting that she be fired and all of these things. We we, no one was anyone taking into account the intent. And that's what bothers me because when we lose those things, we lose our humanity. And well, because I mean, if if intent becomes part of the, and I think the, the, the easiest part for me to understand what you're saying is if we're losing our humanity, um, at, at least from from what you're talking about as a context, I mean that means that there could have never been and will never be a stand up comic ever again, yeah, absolutely not, and that's something actually we Mark and I were talking about this in there, and I said, what if a stand up comic said that? Sure, I think the stand up comic would have got away with it, oh totally, and because especially it's like if, oh, you're allowed to be funny. and and that's 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 a weird thing it was like, oh, you're allowed to make an off color joke. Because it was good, so mm-hmm. so so I th- I feel like more than anything, what this girl got away got in trouble for was making a joke that wasn't funny. 
Sure. So, well, you know, she's being attacked for being racist, but really what we're shaming her for is is a bad sense of humor. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's really what it is. Because if it was funny and everybody thought it was funny and they saw the sarcasm in it, if she had worded it right and they understood the sarcasm of it, then there wouldn't have been a problem because it'd be like, oh, she was just being sarcastic. She had sure. a good joke. Sure, but it's like Kramer's thing, right? I, I forget the, the Kramer example when he went on stage and basically blasted that guy um, using racial racial slurs and stuff like that. Um, his And that's a stand-up comic on a stage during the middle of a set. And his right. intent changed, and that's where the problem came. Well, his intent changed, and he also stopped joking. Yeah, exactly. Um, so his, his, his intent most people would say his intent was clear. Um, sure. I, I, I refuse to watch the video of it because I just don't need to hear that word because I honestly think that word is, you know, um, William Burroughs used to talk about word viruses. Yeah. I believe that word's uh, it's a virus. that so when you hear it, it swims around in your head for days and sure. it keeps popping up and you're like, I don't want that word in my head. Um, you know, something interesting that I forgot, there was one thing from that book that, we just talked ourselves into what he talks about is one of the problems with um, the internet is because the internet is, you know, it's all based in computers, right? Well, uh, it inspires binarity. I don't even know if that's a word. I made it up. Maybe it inspires us to think in binaries. Sure. On off. Did you send the email? Did you not send the email? Well, you know what it also inherently does too. And I think this is, it, it goes back to the, the point that you had a few minutes ago about, um, well, maybe you maybe you intended to make maybe you didn't intend to make the point, but this is how I took it. Um, so I've been big on objectivity lately, and I think that that having that emotional ob- objectivity um, or even just tangible objectivity allows you to see the world through a another person's perspective, like in in the sense of that. That, that girl who told that joke, for example, and that perspective allows you to to and, and that perspective and objectivity then allows you to step out from your own perspective and understand something differently and I think that the the online culture that we 've cultivated has almost entirely eliminated our ability to have that objectivity because I think the objectivity and the perspective comes from an inherent sense of empathy, and empathy is something that quickly dies online and you know, going back to his point about the, the, there's no actual communication going on. There's no connection. Do you do do the people that did this really think that that changed anything? They really think that they, you know, like, well, now that we crushed that girl, there's no more racism. Well, they they don't realize that that's that the person they're crushing is a person, and that you've just ruined a person's life. And she was right. young. And the thing about it is, if one person instead of you know fifty thousand people or how many ever people just fucking shitting on her if just one person had replied and said hey you know that that can be understood as kind of racist and then gave her a chance to reply and she said that wasn't my intention i was being sarcastic and this is what i actually meant or the chance to say yeah i know it is i'm racist you know whatever there's an actual dialogue beginning there that's not what happened here yeah, we fully, I mean, the world fully judged her before she even had a chance to see the responses. And to be clear, I know I bring up this girl a lot. She, I just think she's a really great example of a small thing going really big. I don't know if this girl's a racist or not. I don't know. I don't know her. Well, mm-hmm. the, the, but, but the, the bigger point is that we never gave her a chance. 
Right. We just, we literally decided, you know, this country, we talk a lot when, when we're talking big, we like to say, oh, yes, it's wonderful because you know, we are innocent and proven guilty. No, you're not anymore. Not anymore. It hasn't you're, been that way for a long time, actually. You're guilty and you don't even get a trial. Yeah. You just it's get whatever, shot in the face. It's whatever people decide that you are. And sometimes guilty people are seen as innocent and innocent people are seen as guilty. So it works. It actually, that actually cuts both ways. And it's, it's, and that's that binarity. Um I really need to find out if that's a word because I like it. <laughs> I feel um, like that's that's going to be the name of the episode, whether we like it or not now. I like binarity. Yeah, or just binarity. Uh, I got to be careful because people might think I'm talking about male, female binarity. Um, what I was going to say is about that binarity, that, uh, just a small tangent that I thought you would find really fascinating. Um, he makes this point where he talks about, uh, you see the, the EU is kind of like, sort of falling apart right now, right? Oh, completely, Uh, yeah. And he says he thinks it's because um, in the computer age, we deal in binarity. We deal in binaries. But those ideas, the idea of a unified currency, the idea of free flow across borders, the idea of uh, everybody working together are ideas of the radio and television era. Because when you watch radio, or when you listen to radio and you watch television, you were watching the same thing everybody else was watching. You all shared something. But we yeah. don't think like that anymore because that's not what's bred into us by these by the the computer generation, which it needs definition. Everything must be defined. You know, what is this? This is rock. No, no, this is this is indie college rock with hip hop influence. Everything must be defined. Everything must be boiled down to one or zero. Are you French or are you Swiss? Well, I also think that the, the, a cooler secondary point there too is that the computer age also limits what kind of shared experience we can have. Yeah, because we don't have one, right? Yeah, Those exactly. Like personalized we we feeds, we share nothing. I mean, even something as simple as all of us watching the same TV show at the same time on a Friday night, for example. Exactly. And then the, and then the next day, we can all get together and talk about said episode of said TV show. That doesn't happen anymore. I mean, I can't remember. I mean, you and I do it all the time. Like, hey, dude, have you seen The Expanse? No, 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 no. Have you seen the? You know, so we, yeah, we don't never even we don't have it. the same we don't have the same collective experience anymore. You know what I mean? And so because of that, I feel like our sense of perspective timing from person to person, friend to friend, and even stranger to stranger is entirely different. Yeah, and I mean, and this idea, I think I, I didn't think about this before, but this like desire for definition of things because of you know of this individual thing, we feel like we, everything has to be defined and and categorized and recategorized. You know, it's like, are you left or are you, you know, are you a liberal or are you a progressive? Well, because we have to define that even further. Um, intersectionality. You know, I'm not I'm not just a woman. I'm a black woman. No, I'm not just a black woman. I'm a black gay woman. Um, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I'm saying that that's an example of us defining things more. I'm not making a value judgment of that at all. Um, but then I also think in response to that, I think that's why we're seeing now is the time where the idea of gender fluidity is coming up. Because I think in a way, it's a response against this desire for this binary, for everything to be defined. I think, sure. that's, I think that's the revolution that's actually happening where it's like, no, no, no more of that. We, these computers ask too much of us. 
and you know the, the oh man <laughs> this is it's a good episode it's even hard to know where to spin off from that because I, I, you, you made a, an extrapolation that goes past the point of where I wanted to talk about in the previous um, conclusion that we came up with, which is the lack of a shared perspective or the lack of a shared experience. Go I will back say now go back, go back, go back. I, I will say now that that is the number one reason why my current relationship failed. Because you were living in two different worlds. Exactly, we had no collective shared experience, so so we began be we began to relate to each other less and less. And the horrifying thing about that situation, and I imagine that in smaller pockets, this happens all the time, is that her and I, we still love each other and we love each other deeply. But our collective experience is so different that our worlds don't even come close to lining up. And the irony of all of that is that in us breaking up, um, we ended up spending more time together you know, kind of dissecting our lives and kind of taking things apart and splitting up stuff. And in sharing that experience, we remembered why we were together. <laughs> and, it's but funny we how we apart. talk our everything into unity because that totally fits into everything. Oh, man, it's so brutal, though. It's so, it, it, so, so, so that's the cost. That's, that's the price I pay. You know, and, and I think that, that there's no there's no finer point to it for me, no no stronger perspective or, or, or no less tangibility to me than that. I my relationship the, the, with the woman I personally think is the one for me failed because I didn't recognize this stuff soon enough or react to it quickly enough. And or you guys lived in the same more, house too. We should clarify yeah, that. Exactly. We live You're in, in different house. worlds in the same house. More to clarify the point. Um, and I think this is one of the things that you and I work on. God, I wish we'd, we'd done this sooner, but that's what life's all about, right? I wasn't brave enough to do it sooner, not until it cost me something. And that's really unfortunate. It goes back to that thing that we talked about before is sometimes you have to get rid of things you like to make room for the things you love. Yeah, I think that's so true. There's that's nothing hard. that is that is a truer statement than you can possibly imagine in my situation. And that's why that's why I had to get rid of social media. I'm not going to lie, you know, like everybody else, there is enjoyment in it, but it was getting in the way of things I love, which was sure. actually people. Yeah, <laughs> and knew, I think right? it does it for everybody. <laughs> you know, like I, I would, I would, I would think that you at some point I'm going to just extrapolate from your relationship and make this a little more general. Um, there are people out there who maybe communicate, don't realize it, but communicate with their significant other via social media more than they do face-to-face. Oh, I don't doubt that. I, I can think of a few that I suspect that that's happening with. <laughs> and it, it's just, it's in the way. Yeah. And that's why I, I, I'm getting rid of it. And of course, I encourage other people to. Well, I, it, but, but the problem, though, is that people don't realize it's in the way because they believe they're sharing an experience and they are not sharing, sharing an experience at all. Right. So it's, it's, it's trickery. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's a substitute that isn't a substitute in any real way at all. I do think that this revolt against social media is it's gaining speed. Um, I agree. Uh, there are a lot of people I know who are pretty deep into social media who are kind of vehemently against it now. Oh, and, and others who are, are slowly backing away from it. You know what I mean? You know how I mentioned that I had those 23 conversations? Um, I'm not going to say all 23, but let's say 20. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was at least 20. All of them started with almost the exact same sentence. I wish I could do that. Literally. Yeah, sure. 
it just blew my mind because it, number one, it's like, that's how much this stuff is just kind of wrapped in our heads that we think, you know, even though like they're exaggerating a little bit by saying that, but, but when you say things, there is meaning in it. I wish I could. In other words, you believe you can't. Mm-hmm. And that's just, it's, it's terrifying. Um, I think that I, I, I think it's gaining speed because uh, when, when we've seen uh, like uh what was that fucking app? Remember there was that app that everybody was for a minute there was bailing off of Instagram to go to that app. Snapchat? Uh, no, no, no. It was the one um, that was owned by like somebody in Saudi Arabia. Mm. So I can't remember what it was called. Um, anyways, it doesn't matter. There was, there was a moment where this is mass exodus. You know, people weren't deleting their Instagrams, but they were telling people that I'm going to leave Instagram and I'm going to go over to this app. And then it, poof, died out. You know, the app's still around, but, you know, everybody went back to Instagram. Anytime something like that happens, I doubt the validity of it because when something this big changes, it doesn't happen in an explosion. Yeah. It happens in a slow... It's 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 literally the reverse of the, the, the curve of innovation. Hmm. It starts off... It starts off with, you know, the people that are willing to go without it, the people, the brave people. And then the people that are the next group, you know, the a little more, they're a little less brave than those people to go first, but now they're willing to go before everybody else because they saw these people go. Do you think? Do you think defining it that way it works in the inverse of the the curve of innovation that becomes like the curve of stagnation heading in the other direction? Yeah, I, I mean, I, the reason I say reverse is because I don't think it's an inverse. Okay, I think it's literally the same curve. It's just the opposite action is happening. Instead of something growing, it's dwindling. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. Um, I, don't know if, I don't know if that really makes a difference or not. That's just why I chose that word. No, that um, makes sense. That makes more sense. At least um, in the way you explained it, it makes more sense. And the reason I think that the reason one of the things that, that slow is important too is because at a certain point, when you can see it going up that curve, you know, anybody that knows what this curve looks like, there's a certain point right near the top where once you get over that hump, pretty much everybody's on board. So it's like 50% of the population when you get to that hump approximately. And this is, this is usually used for, as, as, as I said, innovation. You know, like cell phones. You know, you know the people who had those crazy brick phones. Those were the first people. And then a couple more people had those. And then slowly about 50% of the population had it. And then once 50% of the population had it, everybody had it except for the small group called the laggards that are like, I don't ever want a phone in my pocket. Mm. Um, I, I love doing accents. There's no reason I chose that accent. Um, <laughs> I just like doing accents. Um, and so what I think when you get through that 50%, what you also start to see because of the society we live in where celebrity is important, you start seeing bigger names get behind something. And when you start seeing bigger names get behind it and a group of people slowly moving towards it, it's gaining traction. Mm, sure, and, and that's why I put that Casey Neistat video on here. It's literally from like four days ago, where he says he's he's not going on social media anymore. Mm. And I think so far, he might be the biggest person to say that publicly. Yeah, that's gutsy, man. There's also um, an interview on Jordan Harbinger's show from this week with Charmaine or Charmaine Charlemagne the God, the the radio. Um, Host, 
I don't know what the hell you call people on the radio anymore, apparently. DJ? <laughs> um, he's not DJ, though. It's a talk show. That's why I'm hesitant to use the word DJ. Um, and he's off social media, too. He's like, I'm not on anymore. And he said my favorite thing of the week. He said, I refuse to be outraged. Oh, cool. He reads things and he says, he says, I read them. He says, but I refuse to let anything outrage me. Interesting. I love that. I want yeah, him on my show cool. too. All right. I got to start emailing people. I got to get over, I got to get over myself and, and start doing the emails, man. Just occupy yourself with something. It doesn't have to be for me. Yeah. Occupy but your I, mind. I, but I feel like, I feel like this is one of the things that we've, we've, we've been talking about for a long time and I, I don't know. I don't know what the hell I'm saying, man. <laughs> Maybe I should explain what the fuck we're talking about to the people that are listening going, what the fuck are you talking about? Um, one of the things, if you guys listen to the show a lot, I know I exaggerate a lot about how antisocial I am. I'm, a, I'm fairly antisocial in behavior, but when you meet me, I'm a nice person. Um, you know, I'm not like fucking, I don't have a Ziploc bag over my head, you know, preventing me from speaking. And most people think I'm friendly. Um, but I'm socially awkward in certain things. And I suck, suck at doing professional emails. <laughs> um, I just, I, I, I see the inherent weirdness of things too much. So, you know, like I'll, I'll overthink things, you know, hello. And I'm like, oh, that sounds stiff. Ooh. Hey, <laughs> that sounds too friendly. Hi, that sounds lame. <laughs> <laughs> if you if anybody's ever got an email from me, usually there's no salutation. I just jump right into it. That's yeah. why. So anyways, as you can imagine, me contacting people to be guests on Creative Minds, unless I know them, it's very awkward and usually it doesn't work to my benefit. Um, Lamb is really good at this stuff. And so he, he wants to try to help me. So that's what we're talking about. And I hope he succeeds because it'll be amazing. I mean, even even if my success ratio is ten percent, that's still significant. Fuck yes. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck yes. Um. Yeah. So that's that's what we've been talking about. So, anyways, um, we got a few more things. We haven't even touched your fucking list yet. Yeah, I feel like I kind of don't want to anymore. Okay. Um, you know why? Because it because it, all of it all of it came from a place of darkness. <laughs> yeah, and um, even though in, even though the things that I want to talk about aren't inherent, like they don't have to be dark, but they I kind of feel like they're gonna be. Let me let me just let them know what I see before me. This is what I saw coming in this episode. Lan wants to talk about aging, wisdom versus intellect. Eh, that's not dark, really. That's, that's not too bad. Yeah, and then let's talk about death, baby. <laughs> yeah, literally written that way too. Holy shit, man. <laughs> um, I have one on here that's literally, you know, sometimes I have those ones where I get to that. And I'm like, and that's the end. Um, there's no conversation around it. Uh, Twitter is a parking lot. It's just like this metaphor I realized where I'm like, I was in a parking lot or was watching a parking lot and just thinking about like, man, when people get in the car and they're in the parking lot, they're just the biggest fucking assholes. They're the worst version of themselves. And I was like, oh, that's Twitter. <laughs> that's That's Twitter. That's literally Twitter. Jeez. <laughs> that's hilarious. So that's 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 all I had to that one. I just thought it was funny. Um, you want to talk about the Denver International Airport or uh, you want to wait? Oh man, I want to wait. There's a lot to there's a lot to dive into there. Okay. Um so what would you like to talk about then? 
<laughs> now that we've we've blown all of my topics through the fucking screen door like shit, that that I was mean, a bad metaphor. I, I feel like yeah, no, that is a horrible metaphor. I feel like I, I, I feel like there's a magic here with the whole. I mean, we're I think we're kind of leading into it anyway um, when it comes to the whole intellect versus wisdom thing. Um, like I've been fascinated by that that topic for for some time now, and I feel like it's we're kind of headed there with the show anyway. So I want to I want to I want to understand what you think wisdom is. Wisdom is wisdom versus intellect. I think for me is really easy. Intellect is facts and information you gather. Wisdom is experience. Okay, that's why no young people are wise. Hmm. Because you, you need think- wisdom. You don't think it's possible for young people to be wise, or you don't think there's very many of them? I think it's possible for them to appear wise, but I think it's impossible for them to be wise. Interesting. Okay. Because wisdom requires experience. Um, you know, they could be maybe wise in one thing if I really want to, you know, get into not be too binary about it. Going back to what I said before, you know, like maybe they grew up in a a household where they had to be in charge of their younger siblings. So maybe when it comes to interpersonal relationships, they might be a little wiser. But do you really think even in that case, they could ever be comparable to uh, someone in their 70s? Not likely, sure. And the reason for that is time, right? Sure. The longer you're alive, the more experiences you have. Unless you know you're an agoraphobic, but then even then you have more experiences. You have more experiences than anybody else of being in that one room. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say like your 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 wisdom may be specific, but you still have it. Yeah. So that's that's that for me is pretty basic. My definitions are pretty clear on that one. Well, that kills that topic. Well, no, it doesn't because <laughs> I don't understand why it's why it's a question for you. You didn't tell us why why you're thinking about that. Oh, that's true. It's a good point. Because I think I'm a pretty smart guy, but I think that in in the context of why my relationship ended, for example, I didn't think I was very wise about how I approached it. I thought I could think my way out of feelings. You know what I mean? And and I think that that my mistake in the long run was trying to define emotional aspects of my life in a logical way. Mm. Yeah, I think that at times, not always, of course, thankfully, at times, wisdom and intellect can be opposing forces. Absolutely, and I didn't—I didn't really realize that until I was going through what I was going through. I think that's where why we make fun of people when we call them a smartass. Mm-hmm. Sure, you know, you're being smart, but you're not being very wise, you know, or a know-it-all. It's like you're a know-it-all, but you're being a douchebag <laughs> because you're not being wise. Sure. Um. Oh, man. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's interesting while we're still here. Number one, I don't know about you, but uh, I feel like this episode was a little bit different um, in a good way. I said that the last time and I do think that that was true too. I just, I feel like, um, I don't know, today felt like almost closer to a radio show. Yeah, I agree with that. I like that. I, like that I also, I also feel like because we've unshackled ourselves from a format of any kind, um, 
we somehow there, there's this weird sense of synchronicity and maybe it's and maybe it's not as mystical as i think it is maybe it's because we literally just send messages to each other every day so we're always kind of in sync whether we know it or not <laughs> you know what i mean um but i definitely feel like like the way our conversations naturally evolve makes sense in the context of what we're going through in our respective lives. Like there's, there's a part of me that, that, that wishes for certain things to happen with you, for example, that I think are slowly happening, whether you like it or not. Like what? Like I think, well, no more specific stuff. Like I think, I think that, doing things like the podcast and having the network and getting rid of your social media and all of these things, I think they're all headed towards the same thing. You're accused of groping woman at NYC right next to mystery surrounds abandoned baby boy. It's like, it's like okay, you're, you know people are going to sit there and lose part of their work day because they're just going to be clicking on, oh, I got to go back and find out what happened to the Dominican Republic faces tourist backlash after David Ortiz shooting multiple deaths right before I go to transfer my debt. No interest until 2021. Oh, oh, the Golden State Warriors beat the Toronto. It's like, uh, and the, what happens is people grab those headlines and never read the things. And uh, then they tell other people the headlines. Yeah. Oh, hey, and then, head, and then that becomes the news. Yeah, did you hear that Chris Pratt was criticized for snubbing Anna Ferris and his son in his wedding Instagram? <laughs> Move on. Oh, hey, Megan McCain says Gwyneth Paltrow's living situation with her husband sounds like rich people stuff. Rich junk. Yeah, cryptocurrency CEO who paid $4.6 million for lunch with Buffett. It might be unrealistic. And this is our world. I don't look at this shit. It was the first time I looked at Yahoo News in forever, and it's like, oh, <laughs> yeah. This, this is, this is how is Yahoo people. even still fucking around? After yeah, after still around, well, I mean, after selling fucking admitted and getting in trouble for selling the email addresses of every user, how were they allowed to stay a company? Um, I'm pretty sure that we've seen enough um, kind of nonsense in the in the world of corporations and uh you know companies of that level and just you know business in general to where it's like okay there's no like you, you can you can get away with whatever the fuck you want you know yeah i guess if pg&e can get away with purposely Burning down no just, i was gonna say purposely poisoning people with chromium seven yeah that um being negligent enough to you know cause the explosion of like, you know, an entire city and then burning down countless um, parts of the state of California. Um, yeah. Well, you remember Aaron Brockovich, right? The movie yeah. With Julie yeah, Roberts? I've, yeah. I've got it somewhere around here. It's like, it's been probably years since I watched that. I mean, that was, I mean, that was where the story is. The chromium poisoning. Yeah. Where they, they were putting shit in the water. Not only was it, did they know that it was causing cancer in all these people, but they told the people that the stuff was in the water, but that it was good for them. It's good for you. Crony. Oh, Lord. People so, are... And somehow they were, they're still a company. That's why when I heard all this, like, oh, PG&E might have to go bankrupt. First thing I thought was good. Yeah. Nuke them. Fuck yeah. that company. Fuck them. No. Poisoning fucking poor people. Man, that's... That, I mean, somebody should have to fucking go in front of a firing squad for doing that. If, if you're real on to, you can just keep digging. 
and you could find similar stories spanning all types of different, you know, like from energy companies to fucking uh, food and beverage companies to fucking pharmaceutical companies. Like everybody's on that level of that kind of, you know, because they get out of control and they get out of hand and it's like money, money, money. Um, they've all dipped their toes into fucking murky shit. Into death. Dipping yeah. your toes into death. Yeah. Death toes. Coming this fall. Coming this fall. Hey, you know, let's talk about something. I got a question for you. I got right, an answer. So, um, Lamb and I, at the end of every episode, we do challenges. Mm. We haven't figured out our thing yet. Yeah. How, how should we end every episode? Have you thought any... We don't have to answer it now. But hey, let's talk about yeah. it. No, what kind of stuff can we do? Mm. Obviously, I don't want to do more challenges. I don't want to do fucking two challenges. Right, yeah, let's we, just do the same thing I do every time. Um, <laughs> Come here, buddy. Good I boy. Almost, Say hi to Tom. What up, Latte? Hmm. Let's see. River cruises. Uh, I don't know. We can't do river can, cruises. Get, oh, I'm just going to see if I can get some sort of inspiration from this, <laughs> this bullshit page of Yahoo News in front of me. It's definitely something to think about where it's like, hmm. Maybe, and it has to be. Some, I feel like our show, when you and I do the show, yeah. it's a, it's very different than when Lamb and I do it. It's but a in stark some, contrast. It's in some ways it's very similar. I feel like the last episode that we did was um, very much along the line of mm-hmm. what Lamb and I do, but the way that our our energy is is different. Like you and I yeah. like to push um, um, back and forth more. We yeah. have um, more of a you know like cannonballs thing. Yeah. So so I'm like hmm, I feel like. Um, there's a little bit more snark to our episodes, so maybe we should the, the way we do something to end, and maybe it's something snarky or something ridiculous. Okay. So let's start All thinking right. about that. And uh, I, I said this in the last episode that I just recorded with Lamb. I think it went out today. If you guys have feedback on the episodes with Tom and I, I don't have a social media. You can always just spam the shit out of Tom. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> At Sir Dot Beardo. Period. Period. <laughs> Period, Beardo. Period. Uh, oh, you know what it could be? Mm. I think that we could find... Um, so, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to the last podcast on the left yet. Mm-hmm. But when they do their side stories, they do this thing like Hero of the Week. And it's usually funny because it's like somebody doing something ridiculous, but they're like, it's also kind of funny and cool. Yeah. Um, maybe, since we tend to bring in weird news things, maybe at the end of each episode, we could save something short for each other. You know, like tweet of the week or whatever. Even though I'm not on social media, I wouldn't be able to yeah, do that. Yeah. Or like random fucking thing I found that's, you know, one sentence, two sentences. So yeah, it's not yeah. a conversation. It's just like, here's some shit we drop before we leave. Yeah, I get you. I get you. Yeah, just this is, by the way, the people were letting you hear this. This is the way ideas formulate for it podcasts. Is. You talk and then you go, maybe, maybe, maybe. And then someday you figure it out. <laughs> And a dog kicks me in the balls while he jumps off, yeah. off my lap. <laughs> Take this, you 